The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. And what better time to start a literary criticism podcast? Those, uh, well, <clears throat> the first uh, three clauses are those of Antonio Gramsci, Italian Marxist organizer and theoretician. He was writing those words from one of Mussolini's jails where he would eventually die, but his notebooks would outlive him, inspire a great deal of thought. Uh, he didn't say to start a literary fiction, uh, literary criticism podcast, but that is what I've decided to do. And I've, so this is the first episode of Reading in the Time of Monsters. So you need a catchy title for a podcast, and so anybody listens to it. And I thought that Reading in the Time of Monsters was one. But I also think it's a title with some meaning to it. People agree that we are in a strange time of interregnum. I think that's one of the reasons why Antonio Gramsci is uh, as influential as he is today. What can criticism do in this interregnum? What can it do in terms of understanding the old world, understanding the new world, perhaps helping that new world come to being and maybe deal with some of these monsters or at least understand them? Uh, so uh, I guess I can take this time to introduce myself along with introducing the project. My name's Peter. I live in Massachusetts. I work full-time in an industry, in the tech industry. I actually trained as a historian, but there's not a lot of jobs in history. And it's through reading history that I came to read uh, literature and fiction in general seriously, and to try to have a broad base of reading. I can't claim that I read every sort of thing. You will see the sorts of things that I read and the sorts of things I don't read so often is you continue to listen to this podcast, which hopefully you do, but you will see reviews of works of history, works of journalism and politics, uh, perhaps works of theory and, and social science. You'll see reviews of literary fiction, of genre fiction, all kinds of stuff as we go forward, because I read a lot. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I also enjoy criticism. And we'll talk about what criticism means to me as we go on and, and why I think I have something to contribute here. I am also a uh, political organizer. I am a socialist. I consider myself a democratic socialist. I understand that that term has been made banal to a certain extent uh, by overuse and its Cold War context, uh, but I do think it describes what I would like to see, which is a future where the structure of society is based on workers' ownership and control of the means of production and of the political system that grows inevitably out of the means of production. But I do not happen to believe that politics ends with the with class struggle. It might change quite dramatically once the class struggle is won, but I do not believe that it ends. That's a way in which I, I deviate somewhat from 
other leftists who I work with and respect. So I do think that there is a need for a pluralistic uh, political system, at least within the, the bounds of a sort of socialist constitution, if you will, not in the sense of a written document, but in the sense of what constitutes society. You know, uh, we don't need to go into all the specifics of that. I just want to give an idea. Uh, but to me, more important, or, you know, as important as theory is practice. So I try to do work on the ground. I do internal organizing within my organization. And, you know, you get uh, three guesses as to which that one is, and the first two don't count. I've done labor organizing. I've done a fair amount of uh, direct action and anti-fascist organizing. And more than, you know, a, a neat thing that I do, I see it as influential on my criticism and on my, you know, uh, intellectual endeavors, I guess you could say, because I think it broadens my perspective and the perspective of others who do it. And I think it's that broadening of perspective that we need in the critical field, because I think we're actually seeing an effervescence of criticism, right? You spend any amount of time online or any amount of time reading, and you'll see that uh, the old saw, everyone's a critic, takes on new life when the internet makes it so easy for people to get their opinions out there. And when you're asked so often for your opinions, if nothing else, by providers of services like streaming entertainment or uh, consumer goods, right, to give a little star rating and some comments, uh, consumers of podcasts, right, I'm going to ask you to do the exact same thing uh, at the end of this podcast. Beyond that, People form communities based on their artistic interests. I mean, they've been doing that for a long time, but the internet allows people to kind of come together to develop these communities, and the communities do what they do. They elaborate practices and concepts, and they uh, compete with other communities in some cases. There's interesting stuff going on in the space, right? Interesting both in the sense of actual criticism with merit. I don't want to say that there isn't any out there, because there is. And also interesting in the kind of unfortunate sociological or historical sense, in terms of it's interesting of how they got things so badly wrong. And this ranges from the supposed, you know, higher ends of criticism that you could see either in academia or in legacy uh, critical outlets like the New Yorker, New York Times, which are increasingly turning into uh, glorified Yelp reviews. You can, you can see this going all the way down the scale to comment culture uh, and the ways in which Twitter beef has become quite important. Uh, it gets intertwined with the actual kind of critical content of how we discuss culture. And, you know, uh, that's not to say that that's anything new. There is always personalities involved with criticism. If you read the records left by the big literary figures of the 20th century, you'll see the same thing. A lot of backbiting, a lot of clicky, clicky nonsense. And, you know, sometimes it actually does uh, enhance things and make for, good, make for good stories anyway. And perhaps we'll see some of that emerge out of our period. 
But let me put it this way. I think the good criticism that I see is often somewhat marginal, or at least the good aspects of it are marginal. When it comes up with a really interesting new idea or uh, a way of seeing things or it brings new things to light, that almost seems in some cases either to be marginal to the larger point of either uh, you know customer review culture or of academic culture or of you know internet forum competition culture political often quite politicized and of course I'm not trying to say that uh, literature shouldn't be political I talked about my own political interests and I guess you could say biases literature is always political but I think that that's just sort of one dimension not trying to get into all of that or it's marginal in the sense of it deals with things on the margins of culture. And that's often how it's been, uh, where the most interesting criticism comes from criticizing things on the margins. And the margins have a way of marching towards the center, as good criticism comes from it. And I'm not going to claim that I'm going to dive right into whatever even could be said to be the center of culture now. What even would that be? Uh, Whatever Taylor Swift's up to, I suppose. In any event, the problem is, is that the bad aspects of criticism and the worst critics seem more programmatic, right? If the good critics are on the margins talking about horror, talking about war, uh, you're probably uh, you know, relatively easily seeing uh, who I think are the good critics if you follow some of the same podcasts and such that I do. Um, then the, the lousy critics have more of a program. Sometimes it's a political program, sometimes it's a cultural program, often it's sort of both. Um, But they have this sort of uh, programmatic view of things, this often in the form of mono solutions uh, to real or supposed problems. Uh, We need to get rid of the woke, or we need to embrace the woke, however it's conceived. Uh, We need to just read this instead of reading that. We need to do in this bunch of our rivals rather than this other bunch. Or we just need to um, not really think too hard about what we're doing and just uh, let the algorithm direct what we read and what we watch. Uh, So so where do I come into all this? Well, I I like to think that I've had a variety of uh, experiences and I've learned a variety of fields, and I've spent a good amount of time thinking about it. But more than that, I, I kind of think that that I have a perspective, which is that criticism is a praxis, right? Praxis is a word the lefties throw around to mean kind of the unity of theory and practice. When it when it's indistinguishable, it becomes almost a way of life. And that means more than, oh, uh, you're, you're a lefty critic, so you organize. Though I do think that's a pretty good idea. It means that if you're really going to take criticism seriously as something other than a thing you do in conjunction with your, your clique or as something that you do to pass the time or something that you feed the algorithm so it gives you better recommendations for streaming products. And then that entails 
a both an acceptance, an acceptance of the things that come towards you, both on their own and in their context, and a rejection. You have to kind of do both at the same time, where you have to take things as they are and be capable of rejecting the idea that you just take them as they are, that you will look a little bit deeper. You will look at the context. You'll think a little bit harder about what's in front of you, and you'll try to make connections, and you'll subject those connections and your thoughts about the context and your thoughts about the structure and the form and the content of what's in front of you, subject those to criticism itself, right? A lot of what we see is criticism of criticism, and I actually think that's a pretty good thing. I think it could use to be a bit more rigorous. I suppose one of my mottos and one of the things I consider titling this podcast was an old Renaissance motto in Latin, Serio Ludere, play seriously. So you should have a playfulness. You should be able to kind of uh, try things out and accept that not everything that's going to come out of your mouth is going to be perfect and correct, but you should also take it seriously on its own terms the act of criticism. And I think it's good for you. I think it's, I think it, you know, given the nature of life and not try to get too philosophical here, but the way that we can imagine things that are impossible or, or not currently possible, but we also acknowledge the, the real strict boundedness of life on earth, the way that we are, you know, not that far removed from what amount to, you know, killer apes, wandering the savannah, but we also develop, uh, you know, the space program. We also develop literature. We develop humor. We develop uh, streaming TV. Why not? There's, there's, I'm sure there's plenty of good stuff on there. Um, you know, those contradictions rather than, uh, simply accepting them, I think it's good to, to take them on and you don't, and not necessarily to resolve them, though maybe some of them should be resolved, but to live with them, to sit with them, and to take them aboard and really make them a basis for, for thought and for action in some cases. So that's that's it for me. I'm not going to, uh, or at least for the sort of introduction to what this podcast is about, I could lay out, you know, point, point, point manifesto in terms of stuff that I like and stuff that I don't both individual works and themes and sort of virtues and vices in literature, both contemporary and historical. But I think it probably makes more sense to let that come out as the podcast goes forward. Like I said, I intend most of these podcasts to center on one given work or maybe a set of works. This will be no exception. So along with this introductory portion that I did, I want to talk about a book that I read recently, and it's pretty serendipitous because this book is probably the most important work by a guy who is arguably the patron saint of contemporary criticism, and particularly contemporary criticism that has any ambition to it, right? You know, you could probably say that, I don't know, Michiko Kakatani or somebody is the patron saint of most criticism because, you know, she ran the New York Times criticism page for so long and probably has had a really dramatic effect on especially kind of, you know, 
for lack of a better term, middlebrow taste. But let's put that aside for now. The patron saint of, you know, actually exciting and interesting contemporary criticism, I would say, would be Mark Fisher. Mark Fisher was a, a theorist who worked, he was British, taught most of his life as a, kind of the equivalent of an adjunct, I believe, uh, what it would be here in the States. Uh, had a blog called uh, K-Punk, which was popular uh, with uh, several crowds that would later produce a lot of people who would be influential critics themselves. A little bit like the Velvet Underground, right? Only a thousand people bought the record, but they all went on to form a band. Not that many people were reading Mark Fisher while he was alive, but they all went on to, you know, at the very least have a uh, Twitter feed with more followers and following, maybe. Uh, the the work that I read of his is Capitalist Realism, Is There No Alternative, which he published in 2009. And it's the sort of work uh, that Fisher has become kind of this hovering saint over. Uh, critical work that is inflected equally by high theory, you know, your, a lot of Lacan, and Lacan's interlocutor, Slavoj Zizek, a lot of Deleuze and Guattari, Foucault, um, so on. It's so, uh, Frederick Jameson, very important in in that work and in works that kind of follow from the Fisher tradition, but also inflect a lot by pop culture. Many, many references to movies and TV shows. Uh, his other work includes a lot of music criticism of uh, popular music. It is... Uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, technology in the ways that particularly communication internet technology have shaped culture. And above all, it is pretty pretty gloomy, right? Pretty doom-laden. Uh, less so, I would say, this work than both other works of Fisher's and works of his epigones. But the idea of what capitalist realism is, is that it is, uh, the definition of it borrows from Frederick Jameson. Frederick Jameson had that line, you, you've probably heard it, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And what capitalist realism is, is it's, it's sort of the cultural uh, instantiation of that concept. It's also sort of the capitalist answer to the old socialist realism which along with being sort of a specific art movement, was a general kind of ideological sensibility, right? So with the concept behind capitalist realism is that capitalism is the one uh, existent uh, social force. It's the only way that anything is going to be governed from here on out. All the competitors are gone. And because of that, it can, so socialist realism, the example that uh, Fisher gives is the example of the Murmansk White Sea Canal, which was this disastrous engineering project, uh, which Stalin and the others insisted, uh, you know, the, the, the entire governing regime of the Soviet Union insisted was not just a successful canal, which it was not, and that it didn't cost thousands of lives, which it did. Uh, but that it was the best canal that anyone's ever created, right? It's 
uh, you know, it was an engineering marvel. It, it, it did things that no canal had ever done before. There was no real need for that. You could have just said, even if you were just interested in, you know, fooling people into thinking that the Soviet system was working better than it was, you could just say, okay, yeah, we built a canal. It's good. I mean, that would be a lie, but they didn't need to make it that, that huge lie. And everyone knew it was a huge lie, but everyone went along with it anyway because they were terrified that something awful would happen. If they didn't, and it would. But now, with capitalist realism, without even really the excuse of having an outside power, outside uh, influence to try to justify itself to, capitalist realism kind of works the same way, in that since the fall of communism and the you know de- long decline of the left, capitalism has not had any meaningful rival, which means that the mask starts to come off. It's not all the way off, but it starts to come off. and the capitalist system no longer feels the need to hand out as many kind of shiny pennies and apples to uh, the lower classes as it once did. So you see the decline of the welfare state, the decline of labor power, uh, these other results of compromise between the ruling class and the working class that came about because the ruling class was so scared of communism during the Cold War. Those are all gone. So capitalism can just squeeze workers and communities relentlessly and barely having to excuse themselves. Uh, Things continue to get worse. There's massive failures of capitalism all over the place. But just as in socialist realism, capitalist realism means that even if you know, even if you can kind of acknowledge that the problem is the system. Everybody's still going to go to work. They're still going to fill out all the meaningless forms and go to the meaningless meetings and do all the meaningless nonsense that's actively promoting a system that doesn't work for almost anyone uh, because they're terrified that something awful will happen if they do not. Everyone knows the system is arbitrary. No one can really act on it. They wind up replicating the system, repeating its excuses. Uh, and moreover, and this is a pretty important point, uh, Fisher places a lot of emphasis and discusses how, uh, he doesn't really discuss it that much, so much as takes it for granted, uh, and I, I think he's right to do so, that, at least in the context of his project, that, um, that rebellion is... Capitalism has a way of seizing on rebellion, rebellious gestures, and co-opting it and selling it back. And here, Fisher mostly focuses on cultural stuff. So things like uh, the punk, you know, obviously he was he was interested in punk, and you know the subversive potentials of punk and grunge, the original counterculture uh, back in the '60s, so on and so forth. Right? They all get incorporated into capitalism, and you're your very gestures of alienation get sold to you to abate your alienation and arguably also kind of increase it because you see it happening and you're like, well, all right, what are we supposed to do with that? Uh, all right. So, you know, that's kind of a, the, the basis of the book. Um, it obviously touched a nerve with a lot of people because you could see references to capitalist realism and a lot of material written by leftists. Uh, you see references to it in, you know, your Jacobins and your Bafflers and your uh, whatever else, dissent and so on. 
and more than that, kind of the mood and tone of Fisher's work, both here and in other works, are taken on board uh, by writers in, I think, what you could roughly call the online discourse hell space, right? The people who talk about uh, this dis- the society of discourse and spectacle, right? Because uh, Fisher, among the other theorists he borrows from, ta- borrows a lot from your uh, Debords and other theoreticians of the spectacle, right? We're all absorbed by the spectacle that capitalism throws up for us, right? It doesn't really give us much other than spectacle. Uh, other than the bare minimum to stay alive. So obviously that spectacle has since moved largely online rather than strictly being on TV or what have you. And it's interactive, right? You're expected to interact with it. You're expected to help create it. So people who spend, uh, not to be reductive, but quite a lot of time on Twitter and don't like it very much, despite the fact that they are seemingly stuck with it, those are your kind of online discourse hell writers. Uh, like how hell is held to be by, you know, your, by Christianity. Uh, It is, you know, uh, where the same thing happens all the time, right? So Dante goes through hell and he sees these uh, images of, he sees these sinners suffering. And the idea is they're going to suffer in the exact same way, more or less forever, right? That that frozen moment of uh, symbolic agony. And as far as your online discourse hell writers are concerned, you know, the subjects of discourse might change from time to time, but nothing structural changes, right? It's just the same spectacles churned over and over again, and they can't escape from it. Uh, You also see uh, the influence of Mark Fisher and the online discourse hell concept. It's not just a leftist thing, though a lot of uh, leftists do write about it. You also, it's ultimately a, you know, critique that's not that incongenial to the right, especially to right-wingers who spend a lot of time online, which a lot of them do. It's also worth noting here um, the publishing imprint uh, Zero Books, which has the rights to Mark Fisher's catalog and publishes a number of writers uh, who I would kind of place in the sort of Fisher school such as it is. Now, in terms of my own experience here, I have this kind of weird tendency to miss out on generational touchstones. So this book came out in 2009, and I'm reading it now in 2023. Uh, I I knew of it for a long time. I have read many articles that uh, re- recapitulate its basic points, often more or less accurately. So perhaps for that reason, I didn't feel the need to seek it out. But due to another project... I'm working on, not this podcast, I I did seek it out and I finally read it. Um, And, you know, it's a good book. It it gets its points across. Um, But I do think that the Fisher school, that Mark Fisher's kind of broader influence, um, has not been entirely positive on the field of criticism. it's worth noting here that, uh, you know, very sadly, Mark Fisher killed himself in 2017. He wrote a lot about depression. He wrote about his. He wrote about others. 
uh, for me, some of the most affecting parts of the book were his descriptions of his students at, he taught continuing education in Britain, which I believe is something like community college, about how they were on this constant hedonic treadmill of things that they supposedly enjoyed, most of which involved staring at screens or eating snacks, but they never seemed to take any joy from it. They were never energized. They were never passionate. And, you know, I've taught undergraduates myself, and I, I recognize that pretty well. And I recognize not just in the undergraduates I teach, but in people I know, people I'm friends with. Um, and I think that part of the problem with the legacy, with, with Mark Fisher's legacy, is that his kind of epigones in the online discourse hell space, they respond both to his ideas and his presentation of self. And I think they wind up um, taking and leaving parts of it selectively. And it's not always a matter of them taking, uh, uh, of neglecting things that Fisher uh, would have had them take on board to their benefit, but also taking on board things that Fisher wrote that they would have been better off leaving behind. So let's put it this way. You know, Fisher talks about, and many other cultural critics like Tom Frank and whoever else, have talked about the ways in which rebellious cultures and postures get taken in. They get neutralized. They get turned into marketable stances. It's probably too much to say that, you know, Fisher's kind of depressive analysis of contemporary capitalism and pop culture is, you know, making anybody that much money, right? I don't think the people at Zero Books are becoming, you know, robber barons based off selling, you know, the K-Punk blog as a book. Uh, I do think that there is a way in which Fisher's critiques have been neutralized. I think there's a ways in which capitalist realism, um, the idea that capitalism is basically undefeatable and that any rebellious gestures get taken and neutralized has become an excuse basically for inaction and an alibi. I think that the concept of uh, online discourse hell has a very obvious answer, which is log off. I know I'm not the first person to suggest that. I guess I would say log off at least some of the time. Maybe not all the time. For instance, I'm logged on presently. But I do feel like you could broaden what you do. People treat Fisher's critique and some related critiques as though they encapsulate the entire field of action, which Fisher never explicitly said, to the best of my knowledge, though you could definitely read that into it if you choose to, and which, if he did say, he was wrong about. Um... I, there's also uh, the influence of Mark Fisher's, probably his next most important piece, called The Vampire's Castle, or sorry, Exiting the Vampire's Castle, which is his 2013 denunciation of what we would come to call cancel culture, where he says that uh, the problem with the left is that we let in these liberal vampires in leftist clothing. And the vampires he had in mind were people who emphasized or organized along axes of race, gender, you know, uh, gender identity, uh, disability, and so on. 
and that those people are really liberals. They are dividing the one true uh, basis on which to organize, which is the basis of class. And they go around uh, canceling people and scaring off working class people. And that's why we can't get anywhere. Here's an interesting uh, factoid for you. Uh, what motivated Mark Fisher to write Exiting the Vampire's Castle, which is a very frequently shared piece for a long time, is his defense of uh, comedian and actor and now podcaster Russell Brand. Uh, I'm trying to imagine anyone writing that kind of defense of Russell Brand today, since he has become a conspiracy theorist, borderline uh, vaccine denier, the sort of person whose notional leftist politics, which he was kind of experimenting with in 2013, mostly extend to uh, bromides about love and uh, also conspiratorial mutterings about globalists and the like. I think there is a possibility that Brand is simply too much of a fool to know where that kind of stuff leads, but I don't think that he is somebody we need to expend energy defending. And I don't think that he wound up that way because some people on Twitter were less than impressed with his credentials when he was in the news for being sort of, you know, anti-establishment in 2013 and 2014. Uh, so I think with those um, basic parameters in mind, we could talk about what's wrong with sort of the Mark Fisher slash online discourse hell school. Um, I talk about, you know, practice and theory, and I think that it's bad for both. I'm aware that many of the sort of epigones of Mark Fisher, the people who I know and read, who sort of repeat these, yes, we're stuck in online discourse hell and nothing will ever get better, would say, would almost be willing to come out and say they don't care whether it's lousy for organizing. But I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, leftists, I'm not going to say you can't be a leftist if you don't organize, but you, you should try. You should try to do something. Something other than sitting on your computer screen kvetching, and if I may say so, something other than passing around a, uh, you know, si trying to get signatures and money for Bernie Sanders. Um, you, you should try to get involved with something with labor solidarity or housing justice or anti-fascism or something, something offline. If you can, maybe you can't, maybe you don't have the time or you're, uh, you're, you're, something else is stopping you. But you, if nothing else, you know, Fisher himself in Capitalist Realism, you know, calls on us to do something, calls on us to break out of the spectacle. And one way to break out of the spectacle is by acting. Uh, not everything's going to be effective and it's going to be hard. And you're going to deal with people who to use the term that you likely use are cringe. Uh, and may I say, I, I really prefer cringe worthy. I don't think we're in such a hurry. We need to drop the worthy, but people disagree with me uh, evidently, but I'm aware that uh, from, from experience that trying to tell that to people that they should just actually go out and organize uh, has limited utility. So I'm going to say that actually the Fisher School has proven uh, not that great at analysis either, that they kind of replicate this narrow list of themes, mostly established by Fisher and other similar cultural critics. There's this backwash of tropes 
you know, it's the same stuff over and over again. Like, we get it. I mean, if nothing else, what they wind up doing is kind of replicating the endless, meaningless churn of a few signifiers that they say that they're criticizing in the online discourse hell space. Uh, And you see this in many critical sets, right? Even the ones I kind of like and agree with, right? They become these, among other things, parasocial spaces where most people are saying the same stuff over and over again and applying the same ideas uh, occasionally to new things and not really coming up with anything new. Uh, so it's pretty ironic. There, there's a couple of ironies here, among other things. The way that in Vampire's Castle, uh, Fisher understood himself to be defending the real left, right, the working class left, by defending someone like Russell Brand, who has the goofiest goddamn ideas about everything. Um, you know, there's nothing very r- rigorous about what he does. Uh, but Fisher sees himself as defending the real rigorous left from supposed liberals by defending the goofiest motherfucker on earth. So that's an irony. There's also an irony that uh, Fisher is the great prophet of uh, how terrible it is to live without alternatives, but his epigones kind of seem to wallow in it, right? They... uh, they don't seek out an alternative. They don't uh, try to make one or even think about one, what one might look like. And th- they exist. Um, they might not be exactly what you want, but it's something. So you have, you know, Fisher, Fisher really got across the sense of closure, the sense, not in the good psychological way, but in the walls closing in way. And it kind of does seem that what unites both the left and the right of, and the, you know, apolitical of the online discourse hell believers is uh, the belief of uh, an almost embrace of the walls falling in. And before you think that I'm just trying to be Pollyanna-ish and say, yeah, yeah, you know, and and that I'm just saying, yeah, just go, go touch grass and everything will be fine. What I actually think is that the Fisher School actually manages to miss a lot of really bad stuff because it's not their bad stuff. It's not spectacle stuff. And that's where I think the Vampire Castle stuff comes in. That's where the flirtation of many what I would call Fisherite writers with the far right comes in. Right, Angela Nagel uh, is probably the most famous example, but there are others as well. Uh, that they can't imagine that the far right is a serious problem, that the, you know, bigotry uh, and hatred that black people and trans people face is a real problem that deserves organizing around. Because as far as they're concerned, the real problem is, and you'll hear the dot, dot, dot uh, kind of plays an important role because it often turns out to be, oh, the real problem is uh, your workplace has a uh, HR mandated sensitivity seminar. And, you know, uh, the sensitivity seminar is probably bullshit. And even if the things in it, things this has to do, are relatively okay, which they may or may not be, uh, the rationale for doing it's bullshit. You know, they don't, you know, the corporation doesn't care. Um, So I get the criticism, but you need to be able to open up more. You need to be able to see more than one thing in front of you. And that goes into 
another criticism, which is weirdly enough, um, given you would figure that that people who wallow that much in misery and and the hellishness of online space would be better at taking criticism. Uh, but in my experience, they're actually very bad at it. That if you uh, even imply that there's something else to do other than uh, kind of rubberneck at the car crash of contemporary culture, that they get extraordinarily defensive very quickly. Um, you know, if the whole thing is just spectacle, then why are you so defensive? Why are you so defensive of your particular gawking strategy? That doesn't, it doesn't seem right. Um, so yeah, it, you know, the, probably the most ghoulish aspect of this is the way in which Fisher's own really sad and unfortunate fate has kind of been digested into this critical stance, right? That's the thing. A, a lot of the times, you know, a, a critical viewpoint can become a sort of posture or stance to take towards the world. And, you know, same for me, I guess, you know, and that I'm trying to take, and uh, I guess you'll see it develop over the course of this podcast. Um, but the stance that kind of the online discourse hell space takes is uh, that they're tragic. They're, they're, but in like a, they're tragic for their own banality almost. They're tragic. Uh, they're, they're just gazing into the screen. They're trapped by it. And they're making these missives in the forms of uh, sometimes essays, more often memes that are kind of tragicomic, right? Funny, but with an edge to them. Uh, the and, and, you know, the people who, who make an argument that maybe they should do something else, they just don't understand. They don't understand how sensitive and tragic that they are. Uh, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you just kind of wind up jumping up your own asshole. Uh, you not only do not affect change, which maybe you actually want, maybe you don't, but you also wind up with pretty weak theory. You wind up with weak criticism, weak analysis, because I don't think any of the followers in sort of the, um, you know, capitalist realism, online discourse, hell school have actually produced much worth remembering. Uh, you know, you can, if you, if you could think of any, feel free to mention them to me, but for the most part, and if you catch them on a good day, most of them will admit this, uh, they, they just kind of replicate the same problems that they criticize, right? Supposedly we're all stuck doing that. But I will say that in my experience, if nothing else, uh, for my own benefit, I suppose, um, I feel like I have and other people have gotten results. They haven't broken capitalism. They haven't created a new culture, you know, but they have learned something, affected something in the world, uh, or, or even just found a certain amount of satisfaction through broadening perspective, through trying to make change or just some sort of effect in the act in the real world along with the world of discourse, because after all, that's what this podcast is about. And uh, in general, be open, but critical. I think that one thing that is not sufficiently appreciated in a lot of critical 
spaces is, I guess you could say balance, right? Not balance is moderation, but balance or balance is kind of like the stillness, like this, oh, you already know everything, so you don't need to learn anything. But kind of the balance of the dialectic, right? The interaction of opposites in their resolution. And that's always in motion, right? To me, balance means motion. And you should always be trying to move and and find, learn new things, get new perspectives. It doesn't mean you have to accept just anything, but that you should be open. I don't know. That, not all that interesting of a note to end on, but it's why I've got. Uh, so here's the deal with this podcast. It's going to, uh, currently my plan is to do two episodes a month. One will be free. The other will be for money. Uh, you can go to my Substack, which I will put at the show notes and you can pay me $5 a month or 50 a year. And for that, you get double the amount of podcasts. You also get a, uh, digest of my written reviews i write you know somewhere between usually four and 12 reviews a month because i try to review everything i read i also sometimes have writings from other people in my Substack, like uh, you know friends of mine uh i've got cute pictures of my cat uh you know sometimes various other features and you could also i guess in theory uh sign up for free and you'll get a small digest version as, as well as the one free podcast a month. But you should give me money. It's it's good stuff. Pay pay for my content. You like it. Um, I guess I should say rate, review, and subscribe. That's what people say, right? Uh, and also just uh, tell your friends. I don't know if they like criticism. Uh, they should see what I what I'm up to. I'll have a new episode about a different book in a couple weeks. Maybe you can wait till then to tell people. Uh, because then there'll be more stuff to listen to. Anyway, that's all I got. Uh, Thanks for listening, and keep reading.